Hello, and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens today. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Henry Clark, whose first book for children is What We Found in the Sofa and How It Saved the World, which is being published in July by Little Brown, which is sponsoring this podcast. In the book, three 11-year-old friends, River, Freak, and Fiona, discover a sofa hanging out near their bus stop one morning. They also discover some unusual items between the cushions, including a rare zucchini-colored crayon, and are quickly swept into a plot to conquer Earth that involves flash mobs, their own family histories, and the coal seam fire that's been burning for 12 years in town. Henry, thank you for speaking with me. I'm delighted to be here, John. So I was I was hoping to remain mostly spoiler free in this interview, but you know, with a title like that, I'm not sure. Well, uh, the title essentially gives the whole plot away. I mean, the the Earth is saved. So I mean, why, why would you read the book when it tells you right on the cover that, that that's how it happens? But I'm hoping that there's enough intrigue into just how the process is achieved that uh, uh, the title itself doesn't doesn't prove to be too much of a spoiler. <laughs> well, regardless, congratulations on having your your first uh, novel published. Oh, thank you very much. And um, you know, how did the idea for this book initially come together for you? Uh, when did you start? I guess first thinking about writing for kids. I first wrote for kids when I was a kid myself, uh, at 12 years old. So some people peak when they're in high school, and, and others achieve their best work in college. I, I peaked in sixth grade, because that's when I was writing stories left and right, and uh, I had a very receptive teacher who encouraged me and even sent me to the other sixth grade classes in that particular school to read the things that I had written. And it was around then that I, I really, really wanted to write and I was always writing about two sort of goofy 11, 12-year-old boys who were essentially modeled on either Laurel and Hardy or, or maybe more appropriately Abbott and Costello because there was always one who was slightly brighter and, and more fast-talking than the other. And the other was, was slightly dumber and goofier but turned out to save the day. And these kids... Uh, have always been somewhere in the back of my mind. You know, I grew up, stopped writing 12-year-olds' uh, stories, uh, but then recently turned back to them, and suddenly they were in a, a very long uh, YA novel, <laughs> which you've just read. Okay. And, I mean, is it safe to say that that same sort of dynamic with the two boys really is sort of uh, what you see, sort of the friendship between River and Freak in, in this book? Yes. Uh, what has been added is is the third party, uh, a young girl, Fiona, uh, which when I was 12 years old, ne never wrote about girls. I don't know why they were never characters in my 12-year-old fiction, but uh, I realized as I got older that it would add a certain element of, um, I don't know, a little a slightly wiser character who uh, could help them through the uh, plot twists. Then as far as even if the sort of influences have been there for a while, when did you sort of first start really putting the structure together for this story? And was there a certain certain influence or spark that's in terms of the plot of this one that sort of had come to you at a certain moment? I ran across an article in some magazine about an underground coal seam fire in Pennsylvania near the town of uh, Centralia. And it's apparently been, been burning for decades, and they expect it to burn possibly for a few centuries until the coal under the ground is totally exhausted. And I just became fascinated with the idea of this desolate area that had been created by the fact that just a few feet beneath the surface, there was all this combustion going on. 
And I started wondering, what, what if, you know, you're a family that's living right on the perimeter, we're right on the edge of this, what would it be like to go out your back door and just have this very warm, sometimes dangerous environment uh, just lurking on the edge of your property? Hmm. As far as the uh, the book sort of eventually finding its way to your publisher, Little Brown, did you end up shopping it around to uh, literary agents at a certain point first? Uh, uh, yeah, well, I had written like four or five books aimed at adults, uh, and nobody was interested in those. And I had essentially said, okay, I'm just going to give up this writing thing. And, and then I remembered, you know, my characters from sixth grade, and I said, wait a minute, I was that's the last time anything I wrote was very popular because I connected with my other fellow 12-year-olds, why don't I try a book with those characters and see what happens? And I wrote it, and I picked sort of arbitrarily five agents just off a list on the Internet and sent them out. And within a couple of weeks, two of those agents had gotten back to me, and I went with one of them. And uh, Little Brown, within the first five or six publishers we sent it to, uh, said that they were interested. So... Um, I just about given up, but I just sort of recycled back to my origins, so to speak. Hmm. Um, and now I also understand that you've uh, written for Mad Magazine, too. Is that right? Yeah, that was another childhood aspiration. Uh, I had fairly enlightened parents, and they started giving me copies of Mad for birthdays and things until I started going down to the candy store and plunking down my 25 cents cheap, which is what it cost back then. Uh, to buy the magazine myself. And uh, when I got older, I submitted a few ideas to them. And uh, over the course of, mm, oh, I don't know, 20 years, I've sold over a dozen articles to them, starting around 1978 through, I guess, 1996. The nice thing about MAD is that they're big recyclers. They will take something they published 20 years ago and plop it in the magazine again. So my bylines keeps coming up. So it's sort of gratifying in that respect. Do you think uh, your 12-year-old you would be pretty uh, impressed with uh, the fact that you got to, uh, I mean, you already clearly were writing back then, but the fact that, you know, what you were picking up at the, the corner shop, you eventually would appear in yourself? I think my 12-year-old self would be very, very excited about this. You know, hmm. it's... it's... Uh, my friends and I would get together and we'd make up our own humor magazines at the age of 12 and staple them together and give them names like stupid <laughs> or crazy or things like that. And I'm very pleased when I got the phone call from Mad for the first article. Uh, it was like, I, I guess I was in my late 20s, but I, was, I still felt suddenly like I was 12. And, uh, you know, in addition to Mad, I'm curious, what else were you uh, reading back in those days? <clears throat> okay, when I was growing up in in the late Cretaceous period, you didn't have YA, and and the children's section of the library was essentially a bookcase uh, rather than an entire room. Uh, there were what were called juveniles, and I was lucky early on to, to find uh, things like uh, E. Nesbitt's uh, books about the five children, uh, Phoenix and the Carpet, and Five Children and It. Uh, there were other writers like uh, Roald Dahl and... Um, Eleanor Cameron, who had a series that I loved as a kid called the Mushroom Planet series. And I think those were big influences when I came to write this. I wanted the same sort of exciting read that I got from those. Um, I was also reading the, the what I considered the uh, PBFCs, Hot Boilers for Children, essentially the Hardy Boys series, the Tom Swift series, uh, books that 
when I look back at them, obviously were you know written on a weekend and and, and sent into the publisher, but that kept me uh, kept me reading because uh, they were exciting. Did either of those influence, or maybe even your writing for Mad? Did that give you any sort of lessons or ideas that you sort of brought to uh, to writing this book? In a way, uh, Mad tends to pitch a lot of jokes over the uh, the heads of its actual seeming target audience. I mean, if you think that Mad's audience is twelve to fourteen or so, a lot of the things in the magazine you don't understand because you're not old enough to. And I felt very flattered reading Mad and watching cartoons on TV like Rocking Bullwinkle that also included occasionally the adult humor. And I've tried to include uh, a few jokes in the book uh, that are actually over the heads of the readers because it's flattering. You realize this author isn't talking down to me. Uh, This is, you know, maybe people older than I am are reading this and enjoying this. And I can't wait until I can figure out what the heck this joke means. So without giving too much away uh, in the book, you do have some fun at the expense of uh, technology and its sort of ability to turn us into zombies. Uh, Do you have some strong feelings about, say, smartphones, for instance? Uh, I think it's like they are the worst invention of the of the 20th century. I I think that uh, when you leave the house, you should be able to leave the house behind and not take the house with you. And the fact that nobody leaves their homes now without the smartphone or even my comparatively dumb phone, which doesn't do much for anything other than, you know, contact people. Um, I, I like the idea of leaving the house and not having a safety net beneath you of being out there on the tightrope and, and not, having people being able to get in touch with you uh as bizarre as that may sound <laughs> i mean i i have a cell phone but it's kept in the glove compartment of the car in case you know i get a flat tire mm. i can call for help but um mm. otherwise uh, i'm very old-fashioned that way and yes smartphones do take a, a licking in the book but. <laughs> another uh sort of important element in the book is a, a rare zucchini colored crayon uh, now is it bad that i kind of hoped that the victory garden crayon sets actually exist uh, I would love for Victory Garden uh, crayon sets to exist, uh, but unfortunately, those are just full-blown out of my imagination, and uh, I'm sure that they did. They'd be commanding really high uh, uh, prices on eBay, um, but... Uh, <laughs> I saw um, on your site that you'd actually come up with all 16 crayons for the set, you know, right from asparagus to rutabaga. Uh, were you having fun coming up with, you know, those details or some of the, you know, there's many puns and jokes like that in the book, like histam- histamine uh, as a sort of weaponized uh, mime-based technology, that sort of thing? Yes, and, and numenicide for something that eradicates a person's memory. Um, yeah, and that, and that goes back to, to MAD also, because MAD was big on, on wordplay. And, and, and puns and things like that. So I think that writing for Mad was a good uh, journeymanship for, for turning out this book. Hmm. Um, yeah, and the website, yes, does have the full set of, of crayons, and I have a ball working on that site. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, the, the bio is very. Uh, I, w- I was, wasn't sure how much I knew or didn't know about you exactly, based on some of the uh, the time travel elements of your your biography. <laughs> well, uh, for thirty years, I worked in the nineteenth century. I worked for one of those living history museums where the the people employed there get dressed up in nineteenth century garments and tell people about blacksmithing and general storekeeping and nineteenth century farming. Uh, so the time travel just utilized photographs of me in my work clothes, and uh, it was very useful, actually. Um, so uh, getting back to the book a little, um, 
you know, there's there's obviously a lot of jokes and goofy elements throughout, but there also are some serious issues, including uh, industrial pollution, alcoholism, uh, you know, being orphaned. Uh, how did you approach sort of balancing the humor of the book with the heavier stuff? Well, the humor's there at 11. Um, <clears throat> some of the things, like Freak's father obviously has a drinking problem, and uh, the kids are living under a, a above a, a toxic plume, which actually caused the coal seam fire. Uh, <clears throat> and it, trying to balance it, I'd prefer to have people think of this as, as a humorous, funny book rather than a, a serious book about these social problems. But it's it's hard in real life and in fiction to totally... Uh, disconnects the uh, the serious from the, from the from the humorous. Going back to again a little bit of the influences and stuff, I noticed you'd worked in a few Madeline Langle references. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien is in there, and I, I feel like I, as as a reader could see some some Douglas Adams and maybe some nineteen eighties like coming of age movies, things like that. Were were those things all sort of uh, pulling together? Were you, I guess, as an adult reader compared to what you were reading as a child, sort of um, visiting uh, certain things that have been either re- recently written for children or you know earlier stuff as well. Well, I like the pop culture references, and um, at least five or six of the chapters are actually parodies of the uh, chapter titles in in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, in fact, I think of the whole book as as uh, what would have happened if Tolkien had written about crayons in, instead of rings. It obviously, would have been a totally different story, and that's the story that I'm telling here. The the template. Once you're dealing with an underground coal seam fire, which creates a desolation, you immediately start thinking in terms of Mordor, uh, a desolate area in, in Tolkien's books. And once I made that connection, I sort of went back and, and, and threw a few more Tolkien references in so that uh, people would have some fun trying to spot them. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if this is a, a legit one or not, but I did notice that um, one of the acronyms, uh, GORLAB, is Balrog backwards. So I didn't expect anybody to find that, but yes, GORLAB is Balrog spelled backwards, and you've just admitted your nerdiness recognizing <laughs> that, Sean. This is what I'm paid for. So. Okay, well, you're obviously in the right line of work. <laughs> now, given that the book isn't even out yet, it does seem almost cruel to ask you know, what you've got planned next or what else you might be thinking about, but I'm going to ask anyway, are, is there anything you're, you're writing on uh, in particular or sort of ideas you're sort of uh, weighing? Yeah. The, uh, a new book was just sent to little Brown last week. So I'm, I've been sitting, you know, at uh, the computer more often than I do checking my email, um, more frequently. Uh, and it's, it's not a sequel, uh, to, uh, this, the sequel has also been written and I plan to send that to them hopefully in the next month or so. Uh, and originally I conceived of the uh, what we found on the sofas as being the first of four books that sort of follow these kids actually into the world. Well, I'm not too worried about spoilers. By the time anybody listens to this is <laughs> actually interested, they've probably read the book. I, I hope to bring the kids into the world that uh, there is a portal to in, in the first book. Great. And um, I know it's, you know, again, still quite early, but have you been sort of getting some, some early feedback either from you know, readers, whether 
either you know kids themselves or um, you know adults sort of in the publishing world who are sort of finding their way to copies of the book ahead of time. Yes, the advanced reader copies uh, has gotten have gotten some uh, good. Uh, feedback on, on Goodreads. I, I've gotten contacted from a, a nice indie bookstore in, in Albuquerque that wants me to do a signing there uh, tied in with their ballooning event because there is a big hot air balloon sequence in, in the book. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a French edition that is going to be published, so I'm delighted with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good. And, I, and I'm sure, I'm assuming when, once the book uh, is heading out, you'll probably sort of get out there yourself and maybe get to, you know, like, like you said, visit some stores and see some folks firsthand. What, what, do, what do you, um, how are you feeling about that? Uh, I am looking forward to that. I really would love to do readings and, and, and book signings because uh, uh, it's just the sort of thing that makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, uh, Henry, thank you again for uh, taking time to speak with me today. Well, John, thank you for taking time to talk to me. Once again, I've been speaking with Henry Clark, whose first children's book is What We Found in the Sofa and How It Saved the World, which will be published in July by Little Brown. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. Cast.